Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Ratchet Book Club, Hood Classics, Good Classics, I'm Derek. I'm about to do something I never thought I'd do. I'm going to reference a Alicia Keys song that isn't uh, the one where she's like, I was wondering maybe, it wasn't that one. I'm going to reference a different song. I've never felt this way about nothing. I know she says never felt this way about loving, but still. Oh, God. I, it just comes in waves, you know? Like, the fucking over of Breeze, it's, it's just like a pleasure. It's, it's like listening to Pops from Friday talk about his job as a dog catcher. And he said that his job as a dog catcher is literally to catch dogs and beat the shit out of them and stick his foot in their ass and all day bang 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 that is his pleasure that is what these two authors who are literally being tasked to write the story about breeze to organize the story of breeze in their head they're just sticking their foot in their ass and all day bang 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 they're just beating her 916-633-1537 wretched and wretched gmail.com ratchet book club on twitter ratchet book club on facebook Leave a review on Podchaser. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This book is not going to beat me. It's not. I won't allow it. Chapter 5. Everything is easier if you forget about your past. Liberty. They're coming right back to Breeze, huh? It was pitch black when Breeze finally came too. But she could hear the cries and groans of the other girls around her. The air was so thick that she could barely breathe, and her stomach rumbled violently as the urge to defecate overwhelmed her. She could smell the stench of bodily waste around her, and she gagged from the horrendous odor. She was sick partly from the stench and partly from her body craving its new best friend, heroin. Breeze didn't know how long she had been out, but she knew that Miss Beth was transporting her somewhere. As she reached out her hands, she felt the steel walls. The bumpy road beneath her let her know that she was in the back of an industrial truck. The wails of the young women around her told her that she had been there for a while. Her situation had just gone from bad to worse. You think? She took deep breaths to stop herself from panicking, but it was no use. Breaking down was the only thing left for her to do. I should have never trusted her, Breeze thought as she withdrew into herself, curling up with her knees to her chest. 
She cried so hard that her chest hurt, and each time she gulped in air, she felt like she was suffocating. Unable to hold it in any longer, she threw up all over herself. It's easier if you breathe out of your mouth, she heard a girl beside her say. It won't smell as bad if you take it in through your mouth. Bring your face low near the seams of the wall. There's a little bit of fresh air down here. I have a small blanket you could breathe into. Breeze huddled down near the girl and took a small piece of the fabric into her hands as she breathed into it. The girl's technique didn't provide much relief, but it was better than nothing, and Breeze was grateful for it. Thanks, Breeze whispered. You're welcome. I'm Liberty, the girl stated. Breeze, she replied. No other words needed to be spoken to establish a friendship. They took a liking to each other because they both realized that they were one and the same. Their fates were not their own, and their lives no longer dared to live. As they clung to the blanket, they wrapped their arms around each other and prayed together. Neither of them knew what lay in store for them, but they were both terrified of the possibilities. How long have we been in this truck? Breeze asked. I've seen the light come and go two times. Two full days have passed, Liberty replied, referring to the tiny bit of sunshine that crept through a crevice in the wall. Where are they taking us? Breeze asked frightfully. They're taking us to Murderville, Liberty replied solemnly. I'm not new here. I've been there before, and it's worse than death. Breeze didn't respond, but her thoughts ran wild. She had seen the name Murderville scribbled in graffiti on Miss Beth's boat, and now she hated herself for allowing the white woman to sell her a dream. She had been to a place that felt worse than death when she had been with Mati, and now, thanks to her naivety, she was on her way right back to hell. After seeing the sun rise and set one more day, Breeze felt the truck finally stop moving. Hungry and soiled, she peeled herself off the floor when the back door was lifted. She felt like cattle marching to slaughter as she was herded off the truck. They were placed in a line side by side, and because she had no one else to turn to, Breeze grabbed Liberty's hand tightly. They barely knew one another, but at that moment, a new friend was better than facing the unknown alone. Liberty's going to die. Take off all your clothing, a black man stated as he walked up and down the roads of girls. Breeze was reluctant, but everyone around her obediently began to disrobe. Undress, Liberty whispered urgently. What? Breeze exclaimed. No. Everything is easier if you forget about your past. Your place is here now. Just do as they say, Liberty warned. Feeling as though she couldn't sink any lower, Breeze pulled off her clothes. The life and times of being a diamond heir... Her father's princess were so far removed that it almost felt like she had never lived it. She couldn't believe that her life had come to this. Her father had kept her closely for most of her life. He had protected her and guarded her, but instead of helping her, his overprotection hindered her. It had made her vulnerable, and that vulnerability had led her to this place. She was nothing like her brothers. She was weak. As she stood in the line, tears flowed freely down her dirty face, and she helplessly watched the man grabbed a high-pressure hose and aimed it at her line. She closed her eyes as she was blasted with cold water like an animal. Through it all, she cried. Liberty held her hand while the little bit of breeze diamond that was left was washed away. 
Hold out your arms, the man stated when he finally put the hose down. Breeze already knew what that meant, and although her mind told her a protest, her body urged her to give in. It had been three full days since Miss Beth had injected her with her last fix, and already her body was hooked. It craved the drug against Breeze's will, and instead of fighting it, Breeze gave up. If she was going to have to live like this, she may as well be numb to the pain. I'm just going to go back real quick to where they say she was nothing like her brothers. You're absolutely right. And the crazy thing is y'all had an option to make her like her brothers. In some way, something, some part of her, you could have made like her brothers, like her dad. But instead, you chose this option. And for that, I don't think I'll ever forgive you. Breeze clung to Liberty as if her life depended on it. Once again, somebody else for her to grab onto. She's never by herself. She's never able to grow on her own. In this situation, yeah. Day in and day out, they kept each other sane. Until one fateful afternoon, Miss Beth came to the camp where they were being kept. Whenever she came around, an eerie aura swept over the girls. She was the one who manipulated most of them into coming to Murderville in the first place. So everyone feared her. She was a perfect example of the blue-eyed, blonde-haired devil, and Breeze hated her. As the girls stood to their feet and waited for Miss Beth to deliver their daily fix, the room was silent. It hadn't taken long for Breeze to become a full-blown addict, and her eyes widened in anticipation as she watched each girl get their turn before her. As Miss Beth administered the deadly drug, she separated the girls into two different groups. Some of the girls would be taken and groomed for wealthy buyers, but the unfortunate young women would stay in Murderville and work in the brothels. They would be contracted out for private parties and have their bodies sold to those who could afford it. The girls in this group would be common whores, and once they were used up to the point of no return, they would be executed and replaced. This was the group Miss Beth put Breeze in, while Liberty was one of the lucky ones. She was taken away to be groomed for a high-priced auction. With no one left to depend on but herself, Bree submitted to the world of drugs and sex. She was taken to a house with ten other girls and dressed up in sexy garments. She was so high that everything was a blur as the madam of the brothel put makeup on her face and sprayed perfume all over her body. Lazily, Bree's lace sprawled across the satin sheets as her first client entered the room. Just looking at her, no one would have ever pegged her for a junkie. The only thing that gave her away were the track marks underneath the sheer fabric of the negligee. The man that lingered over her lusted over Breed's beautiful appearance. Under no other circumstance would he ever be able to be with a woman of her beauty. Breed was so out of it that all she could do was lie there as the man had his way with her. It was something that she had gotten used to. She had never chosen to give herself away to any man. She didn't know what it was like to feel a man's gentle touch. Her womanhood was always taken away, and she was never in a position to say no. Again, fuck you. Chapter 6 Forever, Mia Moore will sleep with the fishes. Unknown Murder arrived in Miami on a commercial flight with hatred in his heart. He soaked up all the information from the murder mamas about the cartel and Mia Moore's worst enemy, Mecca. With a thirst for revenge and the picture of the entire Diamond family, he was ready to find what was left of Mia Moore and get at the cartel. 
Murder's hands never stopped shaking throughout the whole flight. Not because of nervousness or fear, but because of the itch to get at whoever brought pain to me and more. Murder demanded that Robin and Ari stayed in L.A. so he could work the way he did best. Alone, strategically, and uninterrupted. They all hoped desperately that Murder would find me and more alive. But deep in all their hearts, they knew what was to be found. Murder got his bags and headed to the curb to catch a cab. He was headed to the exact address that was left inside the box with me and more severed hand. Murder's heart hurt every time he thought about the pain and agony that Mecca had brought upon his favorite girl, Mia Moore. He carefully studied the picture that Robin and Aries had given him of the heads of the cartel. He could pick Mecca's face out of a sea of people. Although Murder had never seen Mecca face to face, he knew his every facial feature, and it was a face that would be etched in his mind forever. Every time Murder thought about Mia Moore's angelic smile, he had to fight back tears while wishing that she was in his arms. It was a love that was unexplainable. Although Mia Moore looked at Murder as a big brother, Murder looked at Mia Moore as much more. He knew that she was the love of his life, and he would never be able to win her over, because deep in his heart, he knew she was dead. He pulled out a picture of Mecca that Mia Moore had taken while she was preparing to hit him, and he studied it once more. Murder's hands began to shake as he clenched his teeth so tightly that it seemed as if he would chip a tooth. Just as the driver pulled up on him, he stuck the photo in his inner jacket pocket and caught a cab to his hotel. Mecca cruised through the Miami streets, unable to focus on the road because he kept checking his rearview mirror. He suspected that the tinted minivan was following him for the past few blocks. What the hell? Mecca whispered as he glanced in the mirror again and saw that the van had made the same right turn that he did. Mecca, tired of playing the game of cat and mouse, reached under his seat to retrieve his automatic handgun. He smoothly placed it on his lap as he approached the upcoming yellow traffic light. Niggas trying to catch me slipping? Not today he stated as he eased up to the light and made a complete stop. The van pulled up behind him, and that was when Mecca clicked on. His street instincts took over, and he acted on impulse. He threw the car in the park and quickly hopped out of the car, gun in hand. Why the fuck are you following me? Mecca yelled. He had his gun gripped tightly, holding it like a professional marksman, almost like a cop would do. Mecca quickly crept up to the car, not giving the driver time to make a move. When Mecca got a glimpse of the driver, he instantly felt silly. A pregnant, blonde white woman was the only person in the car. She quickly threw both of her hands up and froze in utter terror as a pool of tears filled her eyes. She tried to scream, but Mecca was in her grill so quickly that she had no time to let out a sound. He waved the gun in her face through the open driver's side window. Mecca saw the terrified look in the woman's face and instantly felt guilty. He knew that his nerves were making him reckless, and he made stupid choices when he was reckless. It was something that he was trying to change. His paranoia eased up. Everybody's not out to get you, Mecca thought as he regretted assaulting the soccer mom. Sorry, Ma, Mecca said as he lowered his gun and took a deep breath. You can go. I thought you were someone else, Mecca explained as he tried to get the woman a slight grin to ease attention. The woman still had her hands up and remained fearful as she stared into the eyes of a killer.
Mecca dropped his head and shook it from side to side as he lightly chuckled to himself. I'm bugging the fuck out, spazzing on pregnant women and shit. He thought to himself as he turned the head back to his car. He began to think about the shadow of Estes that loomed over him. He knew that he would never be at peace until the beef with Estes was settled. He had to go to Estes and ask for his forgiveness. If he didn't, Mecca would always have to look over his shoulder, wondering when one of his grandfather's henchmen would kill him for what he had done to his twin brother. Just as Mecca took the second step, he heard a familiar noise, which was that of a gun jamming. He quickly swung around and fired a bullet straight through the woman's neck. Mecca underestimated Estes. He had killers on his team from all over, and the woman he had thought was so innocent was really there to murder him. She dropped the chrome forty-five as her hands instinctively grabbed her neck. Blood gushed out of the hole like a faucet. Mecca quickly stepped closer and let off another round, that time catching her in the forehead. Her head jerked back and she stared into space, dead on impact. Enraged, he lifted her shirt to reveal her bulging belly, only to find a pillow stuffed underneath. Estes was pulling out all the stops in the hunt for Mecca's head. Mecca breathed hard as he held the gun tightly. He looked down and saw the gun in her lap. He knew that Estes' hired guns rarely missed, and if her gun had not jammed, he would be a dead man. Mecca gave her another shot to the chest for good measure as his temper flared from the rage he felt. He was tired of running. He couldn't beef out with Estes. His grandfather's reach was too far, and Mecca knew that eventually he would lose. He paused, staring at her, knowing that he had almost been caught slipping. This shit has got to stop, he yelled in frustration as he tucked his gun in his waistline and ran to his car, leaving the woman slumped in her seat. Mecca sped off, filling the air with the sound of screeching tires. He knew exactly what he had to do in order to end the madness. Murder stood at the front desk as he checked into the five-star hotel in Fort Lauderdale. He wanted to observe from afar and decided to stay in a suburban hotel instead of directly in the city so that he could remain low-key. These motherfuckers don't know who the fuck you are, Murder. They've never seen you before. Mia Moore's not around to say, Murder, so nobody knows who the fuck you are. You can do whatever you want. You're a black dude in Miami. There's a lot of them. Do I have a package waiting for me? Murder asked as he gave the desk clerk a smile. Um, I don't know. Let me check, the young blonde said as she returned the smile to Murder. The desk clerk looked behind the counter and smiled when she saw the FedEx box addressed to the occupant of room 403, which is Murder Suite. Here we go, sir. It was dropped off this morning for a Mr. M, she said as she glanced oddly at the box. Yeah, that's me. Thanks, he said as he slid his room key off the counter and grabbed the box. He headed for the elevator and hurried up to a suite. Yeah, that's not suspicious. A package comes in for a suite that's empty and says it's for Mr. M. And it's a blammer. It's a blicky. We know it's a blicky. Blicky. Moments later, murder ripped open a neatly packed box retrieving two chrome 9mm guns that Ares had sent to him. He loaded the clips and pulled out the piece of paper that had the address on it. He immediately placed the twin millies on his hip and headed out the door. I didn't know you could 
I guess you could ship guns through the mail. I just didn't know that it was that easy. Not that I'm going to try it. Don't be listening in. An hour later, a cab pulled outside of the brick house to set on a small hill. Murder tipped the cabbie and watched as he left. Murder then looked at the house and took a deep breath. Murder began to second-guess his plan and wondered if he was walking into a setup. He pulled out his guns and approached the house, going all out. He approached the front door and turned the doorknob. It was unlocked, so he pushed the door open. No, that's not a trap. He carefully stepped through the door with his gun drawn. The familiar smell of a rotting body overwhelmed him as he winced in displeasure. The horrendous stench was overbearing, and he instantly pulled his shirt over his nose. Murder's heart began to thump as he got deeper into the empty house. The smell got heavier and heavier as he approached the door that led to the basement. He quickly snatched open the basement door and pointed his gun through the opening. The rotting smell had been magnified by Tim when he opened the door. He held his breath as he began to walk down the stairs, preparing himself for what he was to find. Mia Moore, please don't let this be you, he whispered as his eyes got teary. When Murder reached the bottom step, it felt as if his heart had dropped into the pit of his stomach. He saw a decomposing corpse sprawled on the floor, hogtied. He lifted the arm and noticed there was no hand attached to it. It was then that he knew that it was really Mia Moore. He instantly dropped to his knees and turned his head away, not wanting to see Mia Moore that way. Although he had known that finding her alive was unlikely, finding her tortured and dismembered in the tomb-like basement ripped his insides to pieces. The confirmation of her death was the only pain he had ever felt in his entire life. Murder was a cold soul, and before meeting Mia Moore, he didn't even think he was capable of love. But she had always been his weakness. She was the woman who could penetrate him, and now she was gone. No, Ma. No, he whispered as he put his hand to his ear to drown out the sound of his own internal misery. Murder's heart had just been broken in two. He had just verified that the world lost one of the realest bitches who had ever walked it. The ultimate sin had been committed against her. It was about to be murder season in Miami. He didn't care if he had to make the entire city bleed. Somebody had to pay, and he was determined to give vengeance. You'll find out in the next book what really happens to me and more. Stay tuned. Four years later, first page in, she dies. Again, fuck you. Murder, Ares, and Robin sat in the 50-foot yacht as they stared out the Atlantic Ocean. All of them with pain in their hearts and revenge on their minds. Murder is sent for Robin and Ares right after he found Mia Moore's body. They all knew that she was dead before Murder came to Miami, but they had to make sure. The vase full of ashes in their hands confirmed it. They had lost. They both had looked at Mia Moore as their leader. Her confidence made them confident. And now that she had been touched, they felt extremely vulnerable. Even though the sun was shining, it was a very cold day for murder and the murder mamas. I'ma make sure all them niggas pay for what they did to me and more. Murder mumbled as he shook his head from side to side and kept visualizing me and more's beautiful smile. I know Mecca did this. He's sick in the head and the only person twisted enough to do something like this. That crazy motherfucker is the only one who will go to this extreme to do this to her, Robin said as she held her lips tight. 
Oh, we're back to the accent. Yeah, Mecca did this to she. Aries whispered in her heavy accent as she shook her head in sadness. I'ma avenge me and Moore's death for sure. These South niggas don't know how I get down. They ain't seen a nigga like me before, Murder said through his clenched teeth. Robin shook her head in disagreement. It's not that simple, Murder. This shit is real. We've been hitting niggas for years and we've never encountered any organization like theirs. They killed Anissa and Mia Moore. Actually, he killed Anissa and Mia Moore. Just pointing that out. That shit don't happen to us. We were untouchable until we faced them. Not really. Again, They're not like regular niggas. We're fucking with the cartel and they're not like these old corny click naming ass niggas. But they're a corny click naming ass group. They literally name themselves a cartel. What the fuck? Their shit is legit. I'm talking the best security, crazy gunpowder, and not to mention the entire fucking city rocks with them. If they move like they used to, it's hard to catch them together all at once. We tried to kill them one at a time, and that plan only backfired on us. I know how you get down, but you're only one man. You'll be going against a thousand niggas just as grimy as you are. This time, don't even give them a chance to hit back. You can't kill one. You have to kill them all. If you want to get them and do it right, you have to infiltrate their organization. You have to get close and go from the inside out, Robin said, thinking about how they failed at every attempt to take down the cartel using other tactics. Fuck that. I'm going to do this my way, Murder said as his trigger finger began to itch. No, Murder. You have to listen to Robin. You are going to be the next if you go on blazing. Why, why, why say chew there and then say you there? Chew have to listen to Robin. You are going to be next if you go on blazing. Me no want to see no more dying. If anyone's going to be put in the dirt, let it be someone from the other side. Trust us. Please just do it our way. Aries pleaded as she looked into Murder's bloodshot eyes. Robin placed her hand on Murder's shoulders and looked in his eyes. She noticed a burning desire for revenge, and she had to let Murder know that he was dealing with a different breed when it came to the cartel. Murder, these niggas not playing. If you kill one, they're going to come and kill ten of yours. That's how they operate, so you have to do this thing right. You have to get in good with them and find out a way to kill them all at once. That way, you can dismantle them from the top. Kill the head and the body will fall. Trust me, Robin said as a tear dropped when she thought of Mia Moore. Murder nodded his head, giving in to her. He was willing to do whatever it took to take down the cartel. We are going to get these niggas back, Robin said as she quickly wiped the tear away and looked into the waves bouncing on top of the massive body of water. I want to do this one alone. The best way to do something is to do it solo. That's how I work, Murder said as he dropped his head and shook it from side to side. He then looked over at Aries and said, let's get this over with. Ares opened the urn that had Mia Moore's remains in it. They decided to have her cremated because there was no way that she could have a funeral. Mecca had cut her up in four different pieces to prevent any hopes of a traditional open casket ceremony. Ares took a deep breath, glancing at Robin and then murdered before she dropped a tear and released the ashes into the ocean. Forever, Mia Moore will sleep with the fishes. Chapter 7 even family will betray you, Garza. Carter may have been locked up, but he wasn't dead, and in any circumstance, his survival instincts always kicked in. 
He was a hustler and could sell whatever, whenever, wherever. And prison was no exception. He knew of the weakened state that the cartel was in. And he didn't want to depend on anyone to keep him afloat. So although they had trapped his body, the feds could not contain his hustle. They had taken him off the streets, but he had brought the streets to him. He easily brought his product into the prison. And now he was running a lucrative heroin operation while locked up. I'll bet you the drugs that Miss Beth is giving to Breeze are the drugs that come from the cartel. The one thing the game had taught him was that everybody loved money. And as long as everyone ate, things ran smoothly. Using a bitch as a mule was a sure way to get caught. So instead, he put correctional officers on his payroll. They brought it into the prison for him. And Zaire ensured that they were compensated properly, with an anonymous wire transfer into each of their personal bank accounts. The guards were making more money working for Carter than they did on their day jobs, which made them compliant with all of their requests. Carter wasn't flashy, however. He got money low-key, keeping just enough to keep his books full, then had the rest delivered to Zaire, who was putting it towards his case. I mean... It's not really low-key if you're using just enough money to fill your books to the very top. I mean, I'm just doing enough to get my car around from day to day. I'm only doing enough to have my gas tank filled to the top. After that, everything else goes into the company. You know, I'm only doing enough to make sure that I get to eat till I'm full. You know, I'm only doing enough to make sure that my whole family's taken care of and that the cruise we want to go on is paid for and then everything else goes towards the, the, the business. He ain't flashy, however. He kept to himself and spent his time reading books. He knew that the only person who truly cared about his freedom was himself. So he educated himself on the law so that the system would not be able to jam him up. He refused to let the feds lock him up and throw away the key. As he sat silently on his bed, he peeked up at his cellmate. He knew that the Mexican cat did not like him. And the feeling was mutual. Another guess. That Mexican cat's about to become his connect. Carter would much rather be in a cell alone, but the overcrowding issues of the prison made it nearly impossible. The two never spoke. They kept a respectable distance from one another, always keeping their interactions to the bare minimum. They were a part of two different worlds, and because they had respect for the game they both played, they had established an unspoken truce. What Carter didn't know was that Garza had been watching him, and he had the power to offer Carter what he desperately craved. His freedom. Carter sat alone at his table in the cafeteria as he ate silently. Although other members of the cartel were incarcerated with him, he felt no need to be friendly. They were there for his protection and only his protection. He didn't need another man to keep him company. His thoughts were enough. Myanmar plagued his mind, as did the current state of the cartel. They needed a plug and needed it bad. The low-quality heroin he was running through the prison was not potent enough for his outside dealings. Scarcity made it acceptable inside the walls, but on the outside, it was a completely different game. Zaire and Mecca were grasping at straws trying to secure other connects, but nobody was willing to mess with them. Everyone was afraid of the repercussions of being associated with the cartel. He was carrying huge burdens on his shoulders, and being locked up made him feel powerless. 
Detaching himself from the outside would be the only way that he would become accustomed to prison. But with Zaire, Mecca, and the responsibilities that came with being the leader of the cartel, it was hard to block it out. As Carter ate, he watched an inmate approach his table. Carter continued to eat, unfazed as one of the members of the cartel got up from the table next to him. His goons were never out of arm's reach. Hold up, homeboy, the local affiliate stated as he stopped the inmate in his tracks. Yo, I'm not on no beef shit. I know better than a beef with this man. I just came to rap with him for a second, the inmate stated as he pulled a carton of cigarettes out of the top of his jail jumpsuit. The cigarettes were a sign of respect. In prison, money didn't come easy, so the fact that the little nigga had spent a nice chunk of his commissary on them bought him a moment of Carter's time. Carter's goon looked at him for approval, and Carter nodded his own head for him to let the boy pass. The goon patted the inmate down for good measure to ensure that the visit really was a friendly one. Carter, I've heard a lot about you, and I just wanted to personally introduce myself. I'm from Opalaka, and when I was on the outside, I was doing my thing thing, you know? He said as he clapped his hands together. I noticed your territory and all, because you sent the young goon Zaire through to shut my shit down. I wanted to let you know I ain't no hard feelings or nothing on my end. But I am trying to get on board with your movement. I'm out of here in a few months, and I don't got nothing to go home to. Like, nothing, fam. So when I say I'm hungry, I mean it. I don't want to make the mistake of stepping on your toes again, so I wanted to know what I have to do to get down. I'll put in work any way you need me to, the guy finished. Carter continued to eat and didn't even look up as he said, What'd you say your name was? Abraham. The guy replied. Carter took his time and gathered his thoughts before he spoke. The uncomfortable silence between the two men made the inmate shift nervously from side to side. Finally, Carter looked up at the dude. Sit down, my man. Everybody don't need to hear what I'm about to say. Feeling as if Carter was about to put him on, the guy smiled as he took a seat across from the hood legend. Carter's name indeed rang bells in and out of prison. Anyone in the game knew exactly who he was. You said my little man Zaire shut your shit down? Carter asked. The dude nodded and replied, Yeah, he told me I was out of bounds, and that those blocks were already spoken for. And what did you do to handle that situation? Carter asked. I didn't mean no disrespect, fam. I moved my operation to a different block, he replied. See, that's where my problem lies, Abraham. Do you think I got where I am by letting other niggas run me off the block? Carter asked. Now, if you ablaze on my little nigga, maybe then we could have something to talk about. That would have shown me you had heart, but you didn't. You let another man who bleeds just like you bleed stop you from getting money. I can't afford to have any weak links in my chain, Abraham. With that said... Carter resumed his meal as he waited for Abraham to dismiss himself. The conversation was over, but Carter knew that there would be more to come. Many men had approached him since he had been locked up, and it was always the same story. Everybody wanted to be put on, but Carter didn't rock with new niggas. He knew that if he let too many people into a circle, it wouldn't seem exclusive. Everybody in the hood wanted to be a part of something, but unfortunately, not many fit the bill to be a member of the cartel. 
Carter definitely had no use for a scary nigga. He only wanted the elite. The inmate nodded his head, his ego slightly bruised as he stood to his feet. He slowly slid the cigarette carton over to Carter. For your time, he said respectfully. Carter nodded his head and stood to his feet as he headed back to his cell. He handed the carton to guards as soon as he entered. Carter didn't smoke cigarettes, and although he never spoke to his cellmate, he always passed the unwanted gifts along to him. How'd you end up in here? Garza asked. Carter looked up in surprise. They had never engaged one another before, so the question was completely unexpected. An associate of mine found himself on the wrong side of the law. It was a person I thought I could trust, someone I grew up with. He was like family. Even family will betray you, Garza interrupted as he lit a smoke. So I learned, Carter replied with a chuckle. The situation was comical to him. He had done nothing but show Ace love, but the first chance Ace got, he had stabbed him in the back and plunged the blade deep. Carter knew that once Ace took the stand and testified against him, that it would be all the jury needed to hear to convict him. I've been watching you, observing how you move. I've seen how the men in here treat you, Garza replied. Even the guards march to the beat of your drum. It would be a shame to see a man of your talents end up in here because of a snake. It seems that your problem could be handled if you knew who to ask for help. I don't ask for help. Anything I can't do on my own is not worth doing. I've never owed anyone anything a day in my life, Carter stated surely. He didn't know what Garza was getting at, but already he didn't like the sound of it. That's the problem with your kind. There's not another man like me. I don't have a kind, Carter interrupted sternly. I don't mean any disrespect, but the blacks don't know how to form alliances. I don't mean any disrespect, but I'm about to overgeneralize your entire race. Okay. Some with your mentality could be very valuable. The way you move product is a skill not many people have. The power you have over others is rare as well. I've done my research on you and the cartel. If you're willing to extend a hand of friendship, I know some people who can help you out of your predicament. Carter's interest was piqued. No one does anything for free. A partnership between the Diamond Cartel and the Garza Cartel would be payment enough. We have the product that you need, and you have the influence that we need in the South. Together, we will be unstoppable. Until one party becomes envious of the other, Carter protested. The old man shook his head as he continued to smoke. That will never become a problem for us. I can guarantee that my people are not in it for the limelight, only the money. As long as the money's correct, there will not be a problem. This could be a beautiful thing if you're willing to expand your horizons. I don't work underneath others, Carter insisted. Not under others, Carter. With others. There's a difference. Working with my people, your reach will be limitless. Mexico is not like the United States. In my country, we're above the law, Garza explained. Why are you still in here? 
If it's so easy to make my case disappear, why not do the same for yourself, Carter asked. Although the deal was appealing, he was skeptical to trust Garza's word too quickly. He wanted to cover all of his bases. I choose my own destiny. I'm an old man. An organization of my family's magnitude leaves a lot of bodies in its path. Someone has to be held responsible for those. I took responsibility because I saw the bigger picture. I'm in here for 20 different counts of confessed murder. I've lived my life and done my part so my family's rank could go on. What I'm offering you is a deal too sweet for any man to refuse. Garza extended his hand and Carter reluctantly accepted. Nothing will be set in stone until a face-to-face is held. I'll send my right hand to Zaire to meet with your people, Carter stated. I'll phone home tomorrow to let my brother Felipe know to expect him. This will be a beautiful thing for everyone involved. Only time will tell, Carter responded. He knew that getting in bed with the Mexican drug cartel would prove very wise. He just had to ensure that everyone understood the terms of the agreement. Because if something went wrong, Carter was almost certain that the cartel would not be able to withstand another war. Mecca couldn't take it anymore. Watching his back every second of every day was becoming too much to bear. He knew that there was only one way to dead his beef with Estes. He had to go see his grandfather. The same man who had sent the killers to his front door was the only one who could call them off. He hoped that he could reason with Estes and that he would remember that Monroe was not his only grandson. He had made a mistake by killing Monroe, and it was a regret that he would live with for the rest of his life. Estes' vengeance was not necessary. The burden was already heavy enough, sometimes too heavy for him to carry. As Mecca ventured on his grandfather's side of town, his instincts sharpened. He kept his eyes in his rear view and one hand on his pistol. He never wanted to be caught slipping again, so he stayed ready, safety off. It would be the wrong day to run up on him unannounced. He knew that he would never make it through his grandfather's door with a gun, so he hoped that Estes didn't have him killed on sight. Mecca had love for no one besides family. He remembered the Christmas holidays and the many birthdays that had been spent in his grandfather's presence. How long ago that seemed now. How easily they both had forgotten. It seemed to Mecca that Essie's placed more value on his relationship with Monroe. The little boy that respected his grandfather simply wanted to be loved. But the grown, cold man that Mecca had come to be wanted to place his grandfather in the dirt. As he finally neared Estes' home, he parked at the public beach and decided to walk along the sand behind his grandfather's house. The fact that Estes' home sat directly on the water helped Mecca go undetected. The many people that were enjoying the sun allowed him to blend in, and as he neared his grandfather's home, he noticed that Estes was outside sitting on his patio. A few feet away from him, a woman stood in a sundress and a large sun hat, holding a child in her arms. Estes seemed to be distracted by the woman's presence as Mecca approached. He wished that he had brought his pistol with him. It was the first time he had seen his grandfather so relaxed. There were no bodyguards in sight, and it would have been a perfect time to end their beef once and for all. But Mecca knew that he didn't have time to go back to his car. He had to try and reason with Estes. 
Mecca watched the woman go inside. And Essus's eyes were so focused on the woman that he never saw Mecca walk up. Hello, Grandfather, Mecca greeted in a low, steady tone. Completely caught off guard, Estes turned around to find Mecca standing before him. He half expected to be shot instantly. Mecca lifted his arms and shirt and then said, I'm not strapped. Why not? I wouldn't have extended you the same courtesy, Estes replied as he pulled the forty-five from underneath the table. It had been resting in his lap, but Estes immediately showed his cards and let Mecca know that he was constantly aware of the business he was in. You're still alive, Essie's observed as his eyes roamed his grandson cautiously, surveying him to see if he was injured. Diamonds are forever, Mecca replied. Tell that to your brother, Essie shot back. He clicked off his safety as his finger gripped the trigger of his gun. You're a snake, Mecca. You're a traitor. You killed my grandson. Am I not your grandson, Estes? Mecca asked. Estes fixed his mouth to respond, but was interrupted when Lena emerged from the house with her son in one arm and a bowl of fruit in her hands. She was so busy trying to balance everything without dropping it that she didn't look up. When she finally did, both she and Mecca got the surprise of their lives. Lena? Her name fell out of his mouth without him even knowing it, and the sound of his voice caused her to drop the glass bowl in her hands, causing tiny glass fragments to explode on the ground. Her heart beat in fear as she instinctively gripped her son in protection. Mecca's eyes widened as if he were seeing a ghost. He had shot her himself. For all this time, he had thought she was dead. Now there she was, standing before him, as beautiful as he remembered. His gaze went from her to the child in her arms. He looked like a tiny replica of Mecca, but deep in his heart, Mecca knew that that little boy was not his seed. Mecca was sterile, and the child in Lena's arms was his nephew. It was Money's son, and that fact brought the betrayal that he had felt rushing back to him. Tears came to Lena's eyes as she saw Mecca's expression go from sad to angry. She knew him and she felt as if he would explode at any moment. Estes didn't hesitate to chamber a bullet in his gun. He, too, recognized the look in his grandson's eyes. Is that easy for you to shoot me, Estes? You're flesh and blood, Mecca stated as he looked back and forth between Lena and Estes. Seeing her reminded him of his sins, and his bottom lip began to quiver uncontrollably. He held his arms out at his sides as Estes' finger rested on the trigger. Did money mean that much more? Why is this life more valuable than mine, huh, Estes? Why does everybody hate Mecca? Estes was silent but unflinching as he listened to Mecca break down. Ever since we were little, everybody always favored money. Mecca was a bad twin. I was the unwanted seed. My heart was cold before the streets ever got a hold of me. Everybody always loved money, never me, Mecca shouted getting years of pent-up emotion off his chest. His words brought tears to Lena's eyes, because even she had chosen Monroe over Mecca. She had contributed to his hurt, to his isolation. There's no excuse, Estes spoke up, unaffected by Mecca's outburst. You murdered your brother. You knew what the consequences would be for your actions. Be a man and take what you deserve, Estes said without the theatrics.
He was calm and sure of his decision as he raised his gun, aiming it at Mecca's heart. Just as he was about to pull the trigger, Lena stopped him. Emilio, please don't, Lena whispered. She couldn't take her eyes off Mecca as her tears began to flow. There's been enough bloodshed. Her voice was pleading, and even though she hated Mecca, she didn't want to see him dead. He looked so much like Monroe, like her son, and as she read the hurt in his stare, she began to think about Mecca's pain for the first time since she had been shot. Lena? Mecca repeated in disbelief as he stumbled backwards a bit, completely in shock. Esty stood to his feet and stepped close to Mecca. His gun hung threateningly in his palm. She just saved your life, son. You're no grandson of mine, and you will keep your distance, Esty said. He didn't raise his voice, but his tone was all the warning that Mecca needed. What do I have to do to get your forgiveness, Estes? Mecca whispered so that only the two of them could hear his plea. Ask God for forgiveness. I have none to give, Estes replied. Mecca stepped back and wiped his face with one hand. You'll call off your dogs, Mecca countered. Essie looked back at Lena, who nodded her head as she wiped the tears away while holding her son tightly. Essie replied dryly, I will. Mecca extended his hand to his grandfather, but Essie walked away disgusted. He had no respect for Mecca and didn't want there to be any misunderstandings. Essie would never welcome Mecca back into his family. Mecca walked away stunned. His mind was completely blown. The mixed emotions that Mecca felt threw him completely off balance. Seeing Lena alive and healthy, seeing her breathing, had taken his mind back to when everything was as it should be. She reminded him of the days that were so carefree, and the baby boy that mirrored him an image made him think of Monroe. He wanted to think that the fresh little man he had just seen was his own son, but he knew better. It wasn't even possible for Mecca to procreate. He was shooting blanks. It was as if God knew that nothing good could ever come from him. Lena had given birth to his nephew and had been living in hiding. Living with Estes all this time. Now that he had seen her, he didn't know if he could just walk away. Her affair with his flesh and blood had led Mecca to kill his own twin. Her survival enraged him, while at the same time it pleased him. He had so many questions that only she could answer. How long has she and Monroe been fucking? Why did she choose him over me? What the fuck is she doing with Estes? Mecca thought as he sauntered blankly down the sandy beach. These things burned in his mind, and he knew that he wouldn't be satisfied until he got some answers. He got into his car and pulled away, knowing that he wouldn't stay away for long. Lena watched from the upstairs window as Mecca disappeared up the beach. Fear paralyzed her as she thought of what he might do now that he knew of her existence. Seeing him again terrified her, but when he had looked into her eyes, her eyes felt like it would beat out of her chest. Mecca symbolized so many things in her life. He looked as if he had been through so much anguish since the last time she saw him. He had aged, matured, changed, and she didn't know if that was for the better. She saw misery in his stares and his features were so identical to Monroe's that she couldn't help but fall in love at first sight. I'm, I mean, they're identical twins. 
So really, she could have fucked him and just closed her eyes and just thought of money and everything would have been good. You know what? Never mind. She didn't know how two brothers that were so physically alike could be so different on the inside. She hoped that Mecca would let her be. She had pieced her life back together seamlessly with the help of Estes. And the last thing she needed was another diamond brother to come along and tear her world apart. Are you okay? Lena released Mecca from her gaze as she turned around to sound of Estes' voice. She nodded unsurely as she put on a phony smile. I'm fine, she replied. Estes came over to her and removed baby Monroe from her arms. The one-year-old went to him happily. Estes was the only man that had ever been around her son. He was the only stability in her life, but seeing Mecca had been like a bad omen, and she felt it in her bones that a deadly storm was about to blow her away. 916-633-1537. Ratchet on Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. You can leave a review on um, Podchaser. Cool thing about Podchaser, you can leave a review for the show as a whole and also each separate episode. You could also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. You could become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash single simulcast. You can uh, donate to us so we can get books at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. Or you can leave a tip on Good Pods um, on our tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.